0: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Ozark, Alabama. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. In April of 2018, Joseph D'Angelo was arrested after authorities used genetic genealogy to identify him as the Golden State Killer. That one single arrest gave police departments around the country the idea to also use genetic genealogy to solve their own cold cases. One of those departments was the Ozark Police. In early 2019, they hired Paraben Labs, an incredible facility in Reston, Virginia to help them solve their most infamous cold case, the murders of 17-year-old friends J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hollett. Born on July 31, 1982, J.B. Hilton Green Beasley was the oldest of five daughters. Her sisters told Thursday Review that J.B. was a kind and humble person with a beautiful heart. She had an undying passion for dance, and she was awesome at it, winning herself several different trophies and awards. When she wasn't dancing, JB enjoyed what every other teenage girl did. Shopping, tanning, and spending time with her friends, including her Northview High School classmate, Tracy. Tracy Jean Hollett was born on March 3, 1982. Her father, Bob, was a well-known police officer in the community who tragically drowned in a lake when Tracy was just four years old. Following his death, Tracy became like an adopted daughter to the police chief who watched over her to make sure she was okay. Tracy's mom, Carol, later remarried a man named Mike, and together they had two sons. Tracy, who was described as being vibrant, took her job as big sister very seriously. When she was in high school, she'd set aside time every day to spend with her little brothers. They loved going on car rides together with the top-down and the music blasting. Towards the end of July 1999, JB and Tracy were preparing to start their senior year at Northview High. But before that could happen, they had one last big summer plan. Celebrate JB's 17th birthday, which was on Saturday, July 31st. The two friends decided to go to a field party together and then have a sleepover at Tracy's house. At around 10 p.m. on the 31st, the girls left Tracy's house in JB's car, a black Mazda 929, and headed to the field party, which was about 20 miles northeast in Headland. But JB and Tracy never made it to the party because they got lost along the way. This was in a time of maps, not GPS, and we do not miss those times. All JB and Tracy had to guide them that night were confusing handwritten directions to a random field in a small town. Already feeling very much like a nope and terrifying as a mom hearing this. The girls ended up around 23 miles northwest in Ozark, a small town of around 15,000 people. At around 11.30 p.m., JB and Tracy stopped at the big little gas station in Ozark to ask for directions home and to use the payphone to call Tracy's mom, Carol. Tracy's curfew was at 11.30 and she was obviously going to be late, so she wanted to let her mom know. Not long after they pulled into that parking lot, a car with two women pulled in and parked. JB approached the women and asked for directions, which they happily gave. Once she had the directions, JB went back to Tracy and together they called Carol from the payphone. During the call, Tracy explained to Carol that they had gotten lost, but had managed to get directions from two ladies. Tracy said they'd be home soon, then asked if they could stop by and say hey to some friends on their way. Since Tracy's curfew had already come and gone at that point, Carol agreed but told them to only stay for five or so minutes and come home immediately afterward. Tracy said okay and hung up the phone. Carol expected the girls to be home within an hour, so when they weren't back by 12.30 on what was now August 1st, she started to get concerned. As more hours passed with no sign of JB or Tracy, Carol knew something was wrong. At around 5.30 a.m., Carol called the local hospital to see if the girls were there, but they weren't, so Tracy's stepfather, Mike, went out looking for them. He searched parking lots and side roads, hoping to see JB's car, but he didn't see it anywhere. When Mike came back home with no news, Carol called the police and reported the girls missing. At around 9 a.m., an Ozark police officer out doing regular patrols found a black Mazda 929 parked on Herring Avenue, which WTVY described as being a seldom-traveled and narrow road around half a mile from Big Little Store. And Seldom Travel to Narrow doesn't even begin to cut it when it comes down to the desolation of this road. I can't think of a single reason any teenager would want to hang out on this road in the middle of nothing. There's nothing but fields and a few houses, a trick-or-treating nightmare, if you will. And if JB's car was there, the girls hadn't gotten far at all after hanging up that payphone, and for who knows why. Not knowing the car was actually JB's, the officer left without searching it further. Around an hour and a half later, he found out that the car was connected to the disappearance, so he headed back and asked additional officers to meet him there. The car door was locked, and officers needed more information, so they busted a window to get in. WDHN reported that at first, there didn't appear to be any signs of foul play. On the floor of the passenger side was a purse with cash and credit cards still inside, so robbery was out. In between the seats, the officers found JB's identification, and the only thing that appeared to be missing at all were the car's keys. The only thing left to search of the car was the trunk, but without the keys, officers couldn't get in. They brought in metal detectors to try and find the keys, but had no luck. After a few hours, officers figured out a way to open the trunk with a release lever. This seems like an obvious go-to at this point, but I looked up the car and even Google didn't seem to know where the trunk release was. All that was left at this point was to open it, and when they did, officers found JB and Tracy lying next to each other. They had each been shot once in the head. It was an outcome they had feared, but no one was actually expecting. Now that the Mazda was a crime scene, detectives were brought in to process the car with a fine-tooth comb. One of the first things they noticed was an indent in the trunk where Tracy's head was and a 9mm shell casing near JB's head. It looked like both girls had been covering their head or faces when they were shot. That told detectives that the girls had been killed after getting into the trunk. Detectives also noticed that the outside of the Mazda was very dirty and muddy, like it had been driven down a dirt road. There was also a dripping noise coming from under the car. When detectives got down to take a look, they saw blood dripping onto the ground. The blood on the ground was dried, which told detectives the car had been there for some time. WTVY reported that on the undercarriage of the car, detectives found evidence of blowback, meaning the car had been in motion after the girls had been shot, meaning the crime happened somewhere else. When detectives looked inside the car, they found more mud, but only on the driver's side floor. Wherever they'd come from, it had been muddy there, and the mystery driver was likely covered in it. Aside from the mud and blood, detectives noticed that the rearview mirror was on the floor on the passenger side. That led them to believe that some kind of struggle had taken place. The car was also processed for fingerprints, but the only fingerprints they found came from the two officers who had searched the car prior to knowing the girls had been murdered. JB and Tracy's prints should have been all over it since they had been driving it all night. So it sounds like the muddy man had wiped it down. And I'm saying man because let's be honest here, and also I know how this ends. So there's your spoiler. After the car was processed, JB and Tracy's bodies were transported to the ME's office. WTVY reported that autopsies showed the girls had scratches and abrasions on their arms, and they'd been shot from about two feet away sometime after midnight, the distance lining up with someone standing over the girls in the trunk. The medical examiner looked over the girl's clothes and shoes and noticed that Tracy's jeans were muddy and her shoes had mud and a little bit of blood on them. JB also had mud on her shoes as well as on the inside and outside of her jeans. Detectives thought the mud might have come from the girls trying to run away from whatever struggle had knocked the rearview mirror down. There were no injuries that would suggest that either Tracy or JB had been sexually assaulted, but vaginal swabs were taken and sent off for testing, along with the girls' clothes, just in case. The results were expected to take a couple of months. With the autopsy results in hand, detectives had a hard time wrapping their mind around what the motive could have been. Because it didn't appear the girls had been sexually assaulted, detectives ruled that out as a motive. They further concluded robbery was out because all of JB and Tracy's belongings had been left behind. Their jewelry, cash, and credit cards, and even their car hadn't been stolen. So why did someone shoot them? None of it made any sense, and it was enough to instill fear into everyone. If it could happen to JB and Tracy, it could happen to anyone. Detectives had their work cut out for them, but they were up to the task. One of their main focuses was trying to figure out where the murders had taken place. They knew it had to have been somewhere muddy, but they didn't know much more than that. For weeks, detectives searched tirelessly for the scene, but came up empty. In addition to searching for the murder scene, detectives also interviewed multiple people. WTVY reported that two of the people they interviewed were the women who gave JB the directions at the big little store. The women, who were actually a mother and daughter duo, told detectives that at around 11.30 p.m. on the 31st, they went to the store to grab a drink. When they pulled up, they saw only one car in the lot, which belonged to JB and Tracy. After parking, the daughter got out of the car and walked up to the front door of the store, but the doors were locked. At that moment, JB walked up to her and asked for directions on how to get back home. The daughter gave JB the initial directions, and her mother chimed in with landmarks to follow. When they were done giving JB the directions, they walked over to Tracy, who was at the payphone. They were going full circle girl code and making sure the girls connected with someone they knew before they left. Detectives asked the mother and daughter if JB and Tracy had mud on their clothes, and they said no, that their clothes looked clean, confirming to detectives that the mud on their clothes was in some way related to their deaths. Months after the murders, the testing on JB and Tracy's clothes, as well as the vaginal swabs, were back. According to WTVY, the results showed that there was no semen on Tracy's clothes or swabs. However, semen was detected on JB swabs as well as on her bra, underwear, and sweater. It now seemed possible that sexual assault was a motive in the murders. A DNA profile of the suspect was created and submitted to CODIS, but a match wasn't made. Since the contributor of the semen hadn't been convicted of a felony or qualifying offense, the DNA was only as good as a waiting game. Detectives continued investigating the murders. The Alabama Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, and other law enforcement agencies joined in, all working relentlessly to try and solve these murders. But no matter what they did, they weren't able to identify their killer. As the years passed and turned into nearly two decades, the public wondered if the murders would ever be solved. But in April of 2018, when genetic genealogy identified the Golden State Killer, The Ozark Police Department wondered if they too could use genetic genealogy to solve JB and Tracy's murders. The 20th anniversary was coming up fast and they were desperate for answers. In January of 2019, the OPD hired Paraben Labs to help them identify the killer. It didn't take Paraben long to take the suspect's DNA and narrow down the results to just five people. When the Ozark Chief of Police saw the list, he recognized one of the names, Coley Lewis McCraney. The chief and Coley had actually gone to high school together. Coley graduated in 1992 and had been 20 years old at the time of the murders. He had never been considered a suspect and he didn't have a felony record which would explain why his DNA wasn't in CODIS. Before the month of January was over, the chief contacted Coley and asked if he'd give his DNA to help follow a lead that he had been given. WTVY reported that Coley then contacted his wife to see what he should do. She said he had nothing to hide, so he should go ahead and give the sample. Following the call, Coley went in and gave his DNA. Coley's swab was sent off for comparison to the semen evidence from JB's body and clothes. In late February, they were found to be a match. The odds were 1 in 122 nanillion. If you don't know what a nanillion is, have no fear because I googled it, and just one nanillion is equal to one followed by 30 zeros. Obviously, we don't have a nanillion people on Earth, so the odds told detectives that Coley was the only person who could have left behind the evidence. Following the DNA match, Coley was kept under police radar while he was investigated further. Detectives found that in 1993, Coley enlisted in the Navy. According to court records, detectives looked through Coley's military records and found that he possessed a high-point 9mm pistol, which is consistent with the gun used to kill JB and Tracy. In 1997, Coley left the military and moved in with his parents in Ozark for a short time before he settled in a home on Linsby Drive, which is about a half a mile from that big little store on Herring Avenue where the Mazda was found. Before 1997 was over, Coley started working as a long-haul trucker. He would work Monday through Thursday or Friday and then go home and stay until Sunday. In March of 1998, Coley started dating a woman who we'll call Stephanie. Within a few months, she moved in with Coley in his Linsby drive home. At some point after they got together, Coley and Stephanie purchased some land in the Ozark area. Before they could move onto the land, it needed to be cleared off, so Coley worked on doing that when he wasn't driving semi trucks. He was still working on the land when JB and Tracy were murdered, which meant Coley was living within half a mile from the big little store on Herring Avenue where the Mazda was found parked. A few weeks after the murders, Coley and Stephanie moved onto the land they had purchased and married a few years later. By early 2019, Coley and Stephanie were together, Coley was still working as a trucker, and he'd even started a religious nonprofit. According to court records, while detectives looked into Coley, they never found anything to suggest that he knew either JB or Tracy, meaning there was no reason for his DNA to be on JB's clothes or her body. Detectives now believed that Coley had raped JB prior to murdering her. On March 15th, 2019, 45-year-old Coley McCraney was arrested and taken to the station for questioning. To start, detectives asked Coley if he knew about JB and Tracy's murders. He said he was familiar, but he didn't know the girls, nor had he ever met them. That statement wouldn't age well when they got to the DNA part, but let's keep going. After an hour or so of questioning, Coley asked for an attorney. But instead of letting Coley contact an attorney, detectives held him in an interrogation room for 25 hours. Coley asked for an attorney seven more times, but was never given one. And that is not a good look when it comes to prosecute, but we are where we are. WTVY reported that the chief of police later testified that they kept Coley in the room without an attorney for a number of reasons. They did not want to book him into jail immediately. They were waiting for a search warrant and they wanted to tie up loose ends. After being held for 25 hours, Coley was charged with two counts of capital murder for shooting into an occupied vehicle, one count of capital murder for killing JB during the course of another felony, rape, and one count of capital murder for the death of two or more people. Following the charges, Tracy's mom and stepfather spoke to WSFA. Her stepfather said, We've been through pure hell for the last 20 years. I know we're going to have to go through a lot more because we're going to have to relive it again, but I'm ready to relive it. I'm ready to put somebody behind bars, get them prosecuted, and get this over with. Maybe we can sleep at night then. At some point, detectives brought Coley's wife Stephanie in to find out what she might know. WTVY reported that Stephanie said she had heard about the murders, but she didn't have any knowledge about what had happened. That being said, she did have an impeccable memory and was able to tell detectives exactly what July 31st and August 1st of 1999 looked like for her. According to Stephanie, on the 31st, she got home from work at around 8 p.m. and Coley came home shortly after. Roughly two hours later, Coley left to visit his parents' house. When he got back at 12.45 a.m., Coley woke Stephanie up and told her that his car had broken down at the big little store, forcing him to walk back home. Coley asked Stephanie to go with him to the store and help fix the car. She said yes, and they went back, repaired the car, then returned home. Fixing a broken car in the middle of the night is probably something you're gonna remember. That memory meant that Coley was without an alibi at the time of the murders and put him right at the store that the girls had last been seen at. Stephanie explained to detectives that she didn't hear about the murders until a few days later when her mom told her what had happened. Stephanie said she thought about reaching out to the police since she and Coley had been at the big little store. She thought maybe she could help them, but in the end, she didn't contact police because she hadn't seen anything suspicious. Her husband was the suspicious. Stephanie told detectives that she never heard or saw anything that would make her think that Coley met, had sex with, or killed JB and Tracy. She further said that when Coley came home at 12.45 a.m., he was clean and looked the same as he had when he'd left. Detectives told Stephanie what they thought happened to JB and Tracy, but she refused to believe that Coley had anything to do with the murders. She stood right by her husband, who, in her eyes, wasn't capable of something like that. And it wasn't just Stephanie who felt that way. There were a lot of people who thought police had the wrong man. The Ozark chief told CBS News that he understands where those people are coming from. He himself was very surprised when he saw Coley's name on the list from Parabon. The chief said, Every person I talked to said the same thing, but the DNA doesn't lie. There was no doubt in authorities' minds that Coley was responsible for the murders, and no amount of pushback from Coley's loved ones was going to change that. defense had to prepare for trial and they took the some other dude did it approach coming up with two alternate suspects to present to the jury. A man that had been arrested but not charged for the murders back in September of 1999 and a former OPD officer who was publicly accused of the murders. It had clearly been one hell of a ride over those 20 years so let's dig into both for a minute starting with a man who had been arrested but not charged. We'll call him Greg. The Associated Press reported that within weeks of the murders, Greg was interviewed by detectives for a little under five hours. How he wound up in the station in the first place is up for debate. He said he went to detectives with information, while detectives claimed Greg's wife said they should speak to him. I suppose she is his keeper in the situation, but I do not know. Either way, we do know that during Greg's five-hour interview, he gave a few too many stories about what he'd been doing on the night of the murders. In his final story, he claimed to have seen a neighbor kill the girls. Detectives were extremely suspicious of Greg's Rolodex of stories, despite not having a motive, murder weapon, or any physical evidence. So they arrested him. Greg was held in custody until his case could go before the grand jury, which wasn't going to happen for a few months. While Greg was behind bars, he claimed to have been lying about everything and said he had done it to get the reward money, which was tens of thousands of dollars at the time. Detectives ignored Greg's change of heart and continued investigating him, testing his DNA against the semen evidence. We obviously know that didn't come back as a match, but even still, Greg was kept in custody. Months later, prosecutors finally presented their evidence against Greg to a grand jury, and you'll be less than shocked to learn that they declined to indict him and he was released. He was never charged with anything in relation to JB and Tracy's murders and later passed away. Coley's defense told the judge that they wanted to argue at trial that it was possible Greg was responsible for the murders. WTVY reported that the prosecution told the judge there was no evidence even remotely suggesting Greg could be responsible. In the end, the judge sided with the prosecution and did not allow the defense to bring up Greg during the trial. And I really wanted to include this little tidbit in this episode because we don't get to talk a lot about defense strategies. The some other dude did it defense isn't an uncommon one, but it's not as simple as it gets portrayed. If you're going to go that route, you have to have some other specific dude in mind. You can't just argue that some other dude did it, but not present that dude. In this case, the defense was hoping Greg could be their dude, but the judge decided he would not be. The defense still had one other alternate suspect up their sleeve, that former OPD officer who had been publicly accused. And this part is going to be wilder than a heron trying to lay an Easter egg, but stick with me. Law and Crime reported that in 2015, a blogger wrote a post alleging that a former Ozark auxiliary officer knew what happened to JB and Tracy. According to the ex-employee, the teenagers had been killed by an OPD police officer. She claims she knew this information because the officer confessed to her when he was heavily intoxicated. She also claimed that when the Ozark Police Department figured out that the officer was involved in the murders, they shielded him in order to protect their own. In the blog, the owner alleged that the reason why the officer supposedly killed JV and Tracy and tried to cover it up was because the girls had some cassette tapes that showed the local cops were involved in the drug trade around the area. After the blog went live, the former officer accused of the murders was not happy. He filed a defamation lawsuit against John, however, that was later dropped. The former auxiliary officer got into her own little bout of hot water, too. ABC News reported that in 2016, she was convicted on a misdemeanor charge of harassing one of JB's sisters. Despite that conviction, she kept on telling people that the OPD officer was the killer. Coley's defense wanted to call the ex-employee as a witness at trial, so she was asked to testify at an evidentiary hearing where the judge would decide what testimony to allow. When the defense put her on the stand and asked about the OPD police officer story that she'd been peddling for the last two decades, she said it had all been a lie. The defense was floored in that moment. They were in no way expecting her to recant, and now they had a total of zero alternate suspects to point the jury toward. On April 19th, 2023, opening statements began in Coley McCraney's trial. The prosecution walked the jury through what we already knew about the night of July 1st, 1999, that JB and Tracy had gotten lost while driving to a party, so they stopped at the big little store in Ozark where they asked the two women for directions. Then they used a pay phone to call Tracy's mom. But this is where it starts evolving. The prosecution presented that at some point after the call, Coley confronted the girls at gunpoint and ordered them into JB's car. He then made JB drive to a marshy area. Once there, Coley ordered JB to remove her pants, sexually assaulted her, then forced both girls to climb into the trunk. Coley then shot JB, then Tracy at close range, and drove the car to Herring Avenue, parked it, and walked home. The prosecution spent a lot of time talking about how Coley's DNA was a match for the semen evidence, but then it was time for Stephanie to testify. WTVY reports that she talked about how Coley came home at around 12.45 a.m. and said his car was at the big little store. Even though Stephanie genuinely believed Coley was innocent, it put him in the same place as the girls where they had last been seen. The defense told the jury that there was no evidence to prove Coley was the killer. The only evidence the prosecution had was the semen, but that it had come from consensual sex, not rape. And I fucking hate that defense Every time I hear it. According to WDHN, the defense said that after Kohli was arrested in 2019, he was interrogated by the police. The defense described the interrogation as something you would see from the Gestapo, a secret police force known for brutality in Nazi-occupied Germany. That escalated so quickly. Coley took the stand in his own defense, which is nine times out of ten a very stupid decision. According to WTVY, Coley claimed that he met JB in June of 1999 at the mall in Dothan. After he had dropped his girlfriend Stephanie off at work, Coley stopped at Radio Shack, the throwback you didn't know you needed in the midst of a leaning tower of bullshit. At the same time, he claimed that JB happened to be walking by the store and they stopped and had a conversation. JB introduced herself as Jennifer, so that's how Coley knew her. Before they parted ways, Coley gave Jennifer his mother's number instead of his own because he didn't have a phone back in the day, and he also didn't want JB to page him while his girlfriend was around. Coley testified that JB called him at his mom's house later that day and again in July. He said, we had plans to meet up whenever we could. Coley told the jury that on July 31st, he went out to work on clearing the land he and Stephanie owned, which was right next to where his mom lived. Coley testified that at around 3 p.m., he was still working on the land when he got a call from JB. When Coley answered the phone, JB said she'd be in Ozark that night and they made plans to meet up at Carroll High School at 10 p.m. All of that conflicting with everything JB told the women at the store and her mom. Coley told the jury that later that night, he drove his car to the big little store where he waited for JB until after 10 p.m., Seems weird to wait at a convenience store when you're supposed to be meeting up at a high school, but whatever, dude, this is your story, not mine. Coley said that because JB didn't show up, he went back to his mom's house since it was the only contact number JB had, but she never called, so Coley spent some time visiting with his family before leaving at around 11.45 p.m. On his way home, Coley's alternator started acting up, so he coasted his car into the big little parking lot. Coley testified that after parking, he noticed JB was actually there using the payphone at the store. He went up to the payphone and talked to both of the girls. JB explained that she was running late and Coley told her that he knew a shortcut that could get them back to the main road towards Dothan. He then asked if they could drop him off at home before going on their way. The girl said yes and he got on the back passenger side of the Mazda. Coley told the jury that during the drive, he made small talk, He said Tracy was kind of in her own world, so he only talked to JB. About eight or so minutes after they left Big Little, they were about to drive past the truck stop where Coley parked his work truck when he wasn't on the road. Coley suggested they stop there so he could show JB his truck. She pulled over and got out with Coley while Tracy stayed in the car. According to WTVY, Coley testified that they got in the front seat and then one thing led to another and they ended up having sex in the bed. Coley said that after they had sex, they only talked for a few minutes before JB said she was in a hurry to meet someone. They got back into the Mazda so JB could give Coley that ride home. As they got closer to his house, Coley asked JB to drop him off on nearby Broad Street so Stephanie wouldn't see them. Coley told the jury that the girls dropped him off at around 12:30 a.m. and he walked home from there. Once he was home, Coley asked Stephanie to help him jump the car which was back at the Big Little. Coley testified that they jumped the car and got back home at around 1 a.m. and didn't leave the house again that night. Coley testified that he didn't hear about the murders until a few weeks later when Stephanie told him. He explained to the jury that he'd been on the road for work and hadn't heard the news at the same pace as the rest of the locals. The defense asked Coley if the murders concerned him at all and he answered no because everything Stephanie told me was completely different from what I knew. Remember, Coley claimed JB said her name was Jennifer, so he had no idea that JB was Jennifer. According to WTVY, the defense asked Coley why he didn't tell investigators that he knew the girls after he was arrested in 2019. Coley said that he was scared that once they put the handcuffs on him, he figured they'd already made up their minds. During cross-examination, the prosecution poked a million tiny holes in Coley's testimony. For example, they pointed out how many coincidences there were in Coley's story. Coley just so happened to be near his mom's house when JB called on the 31st to make plans to meet up. Then, after JB didn't show up, Coley's car magically broke down right in front of the big little store where JB and Tracy just so happened to be. Later, during closing, the prosecution refuted Coley's story as a whole, stating the obvious, that none of it made any sense. For example, why would the girls let Coley show them a shortcut just to take him home, then go back to the shortcut when they were in such a hurry? The prosecution again questioned why Coley told detectives he had never met JB or Tracy. Why had he waited until his trial to say he actually did know them? Because any defense is a defense. The prosecution told the jury that Coley knew he needed to explain away the presence of his DNA on JB, so he made up a story about her having consensual sex with him. The prosecution said that the dirt inside JB's jeans did not come from having consensual sex in the back of a truck. It came from being raped by somebody she didn't know.
1: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
0: On April 26th, after a day of deliberations, the jury found Coley guilty on all counts. Now all that was left was to determine if Coley should be sentenced to life or death. During the penalty phase, the prosecution argued that Coley should be sentenced to death for what he had done, while the defense argued that there were mitigating factors that showed Coley should only receive life. In a victim impact statement, Tracy's mother Carol said, I think the hardest thing we've had to go through was holidays. There was an empty chair that Tracy should have been in. We turned the Christmas tree into an angel tree because that's what Tracy was. Carol said that Tracy was her best friend and her daughter, adding, I was blessed for having Tracy for 17 years. I learned a lot from her. Carol said that she was proud to be Tracy's mother and that she has wonderful, beautiful memories of her. JB's mother, Cheryl, said, I thought I knew the meaning of devastation, trauma, and being broken. I have a hole inside of me. It's not something you get over. I exist without her. Supporters for Coley also read statements, his wife Stephanie saying, He's very family-oriented. He's a great father. He's a good man. His children need him. I need him. My heart goes out to that family. I hate what they're going through, but our family, we need him. I love you, Coley. One of Coley's children talked about her childhood and how she had grown up in a loving home where she never saw her parents fight or her father ever be aggressive toward anyone. The daughter said, I'm very close with my father. We have a very similar personality. Time is something you can't get back and I have a long life ahead of me. I want him to be there to see it. After all the victim impact statements were read, the prosecution told the jury, the man you heard about today is very different from the man you've heard about the past two weeks. That man was not a godly man. That man was a rapist and a murderer. The defense told the jury that Coley has value to others. He can make good in other people's lives, allow him to continue to do that. They said, the choice you're making is life without parole or death. As attorneys, our hearts go out to JB and Tracy's parents. My heart goes out to them because of the memories they have lost with their children. But taking a father away from his children doesn't fix it. In the end, the jury chose to send Coley to prison for the rest of his life. Following its trial, the Alabama Attorney General released a statement saying, For 23 years, the families of J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hollett have hoped and prayed for justice. While this outcome will not bring their loved ones back, my hope is that it will give them the much-delayed closure they deserve and will reinvigorate this entire community's faith in the justice system. The verdict handed down today sent a clear message, we have no tolerance in the state for those who casually take the lives of others, especially our youth. This timely resolution during National Crime Victims' Rights Week is a poignant reminder that we must not ever allow the plight of crime victims to be minimized or their voices drowned out. For photos pertaining to this case, check out JB and Tracy's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. It makes my day every single time. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media because all cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. We are officially at the end of this episode where it is time to read a review that made my entire day because you guys are the best and I want to thank you personally. This one is from Joy6876 and says, Heather, I am 1000% convinced we'd be friends. Besties, ma'am. I love the way you tell a story. Your obvious compassion for the victims and disdain for the criminals is what keeps me tuning in week after week. I find myself laughing out loud in agreement at your one-liners. BMTC is 10 out of 10 for me. Thanks for everything you do joy, 6876. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you for being nice for absolutely no reason. It made my day. I love you. This is the energy we need in this world. I will pay it forward. I promise you. Um, you guys are the best and I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye.